You're listening to Savage Wonder, a podcast about warriors and artists. This show is a long-form one-on-one conversation with a veteran in the arts. This show is produced by Veterans Repertory Theater, which is a tax-exempt, nonprofit 501c3 organization, which provides a platform for current or former military, law enforcement, fire, EMS, intelligence service, foreign service, DOD employees and contractors, and their immediate family members to create compelling professional live theater and events. I feel like we haven't had a poet on for a while. I could be wrong. I might, that might just be, I might just be brain farting, but um, my guest this week was Ryan Stovall, who uh, is a poet um, amongst other things. He will have fiction and, and short fiction uh, coming out in hopefully in the dangerously near future, but his first book is Black Snowflakes Smothering a Torch, or How to Talk to Your Veteran, a Primer. It is, well, he says in the prologue that it's not to be looked at as just poetry, but it's really to be looked at as a way of facilitating a dialogue between, this is his words, between those who have experienced the crushing arms of war and those who have not. Um. Ryan was uh, introduced to me by a mutual friend. And, you know, I was like, cool, awesome. And he's written this book that's been published and, you know, had a great uh, blurb from Phil Clay. And, um, you know, so I I knew it was going to be pretty good. I I did not fully appreciate uh, what a powerful book it was going to be until I started reading it. Um, we've had a lot of poets on the show. We've read, I've read a lot of poetry. Um, I have not seen anyone, and this is not a compare-contrast thing, let me just say that. I'm not saying that other people have tried to climb this particular hill and have not done it as well. I just haven't seen anyone try to do exactly what Ryan did, which is really look at... Um, the most, is there a better way of saying this? I don't think there is. The most uh, gory, gritty, granular details of combat and life-taking and the second and third order effects of combat and write with excruciating clarity about it in a way that would allow someone less experienced to fully appreciate what the combat veteran has gone through. Does that make sense? It's a hell of a piece of writing. Um, There is, um, I'm going to read you a part of it because I actually remembered that I, I read part of this poem back to Ryan in the interview, and I actually read the wrong part. Um, it, the, the part I read was one of the many ensuing verses that meant something to me. But this was actually the first verse that, that really shook me and, and made me go, shit, this is, this is different. Um, this is from Ryan's poem, Winning. He says, um, he won't have the guts to try that again, we'd say, looking at a corpse blown open, 
eviscerated, thin, blue sausage-link intestines spilling out, secret and as embarrassing to us as paramedics cutting off soiled undies. He just Houdinied on us, we'd joke. Straight up disappeared. Where'd he go? Well, someone would say, pointing, some of them is over there. But where's the rest? I've got three fingers and a chunk of skull with scalp and hair. Someone would call out from a dusty corner, an exciting prospector, spying something beautiful and rare, and look, he even made it to the ceiling. He's coming back down now, though. Drip, 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 drip. He's your grandma's glasses now, we'd say. He's everywhere and nowhere all at once. See what I mean? I mean, and it's, what I appreciate about it is obviously it's not gore porn. I mean, he's writing about this um, in a way that I think, you know, teeing that up, it's pretty easy to start allowing a civilian audience to look in at that individual and go, oh, shit, maybe this is why he thinks a little differently than I do, sees things a little differently than I do, um, treats incidents, even um, routine ones, differently than I would. Um, so Black Snowflakes is a hell of a book. And um, I couldn't be a bigger fan of it. I think it deserves a um, really, what's the best way I can say this? deserves a uh, elevated platform in the annals of veteran writing, I think, because I think it, it touches on so many of the significant emotional events that make a veteran a veteran. And not that every veteran's a combat veteran, but it hints at the significant emotional events that veterans go through to greater or lesser degree. I mean, obviously, Ryan was a Green Beret, and he was involved in multiple... Um, you know, direct action, direct actions. Um, you know, he's twice decorated for valor. He's been awarded two purple hearts. So he's going to have a couple more, um, significant emotional events than, than most of the rest of us. But, um, what a great starting place to have that conversation. So when I sat down and talked to Ryan, um, what I also got was a very, interesting, articulate, thoughtful individual. Um, and man, was it a great time talking to him. Um, really enjoyed so many of the rabbit holes that we just started to go down. Um, yeah, I, I just, I really enjoyed talking with him. I, you know, he's somebody that I think the way he was raised, um, kind of being a loner, going out in the woods, <laughs> doing, you know, uh, uh, being self-sufficient. Um, you know, he's somebody that really uh, has spent a lot of time thinking. And to see that take action in his writing is awesome and great. But to then talk to him and really be able to plumb the depths of his thoughts on things. It was one of those interviews that I think that we definitely um, started to touch on more political issues than usual. Um, and I know nowadays when you say politics, everybody immediately thinks about domestic U.S. politics and, you know, Biden or Trump. And it's not that. We're, we're talking about, you know, 
kind of bigger political, more more tectonic plates of politics than than specific personalities. But um, but Ryan's writing kind of begged it, and his life and his takeaways about the GWAT, um, you know, kind of begged a deeper discussion. So I really enjoyed this conversation uh, immensely. I, I really did, and um, and the book is phenomenal. I don't think I have anything else to say before we tee this off. So I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. I'm the artistic director at Veterans Repertory Theater, and this is The Savage Wonder of Ryan Stovall. Welcome to the show, Ryan. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So, I guess let's start with this. You're in Maine right now, right? Yes, sir. Is this home? Is this what I'm looking at here? The the great Maine outdoors in the window there? Uh, yeah, actually, you got a, a picture of our constant June rain. Uh, it's rained, I think, 15 out of the last 16 days. Everything's getting ready to rush shot up here. So... I'm asking that for a couple of reasons. One, because I'm looking at it, I'm like, man, that's really lush out there. That looks really, really nice. But the other thing is um, you're in Maine. I mean, you definitely did not. Uh, you're from Maine originally, right? From Montana originally. So this, oh, this really? is a, it's kind of a lateral transfer. Yeah, really. But you went to University of Maine, didn't you? I did. Okay. Uh, I gradu- graduated from there. Yeah, I went to the University of Montana before I joined the military. Got you. All right. So you're an outdoors guy. Very much so. Yeah. And were you a writer at an early age or was the outdoors more your thing? Uh, Outdoors was more my thing for sure. But I wrote some the first time when I was in school, when I was 18, 19, 20. Okay. Uh, Just messing around the stuff that I'm embarrassed to show anybody now. (laughs) Right. Sure. And growing, but growing up, like at a younger age, I mean, writing was not in your purview, right? That you were focused on what outdoors, sports. What, what kind of person were you? Oh, I was an outdoors guy, big time. I was a bit of a loner in high school. Uh, we moved when I was eleven, something like that, fifth grade, and uh, never made a lot of friends in the little town that we made moved into. So I was kind of a loner, and for me, that meant going off by myself in the woods. Sometimes, when I got to be 15, 16 for two, three days at a time. Wow. And towards what end? Did you go just to go camping? Did, was it like imaginary? Was it like playful? What was what was the nature of your outdoorsmanship? Oh, I enjoy being alone. And I also enjoy kind of challenging myself. Um, the idea that I'm, I'm the only one that I can really rely on. This was... Mm long before the first cell tower in my corner of Montana went up, you know, nobody had a cell phone or a, a satellite phone or anything like that. So uh, it was just, just up to me. Usually I had a, a dog and, you know, go hang out in the woods in the back country for a couple of days. Were you a Boy Scout? 
No, where I grew up, the Boy Scouts, I don't know if they had one anywhere near because there wasn't really a town. Everybody was just in the woods already doing Boy Scout stuff. So I'm not sure there would have been much appeal. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Uh, were you a hunter? Yeah. Okay. And when, so when you were out backpacking, camping, spending a couple of days out there, would you hunt and kill for your own food? I mean, were you completely self-sufficient or would you pack stuff with you? I mean, what was the nature of the excursions? I wasn't that hardcore. No, I'd, I'd take food with me. I'd, okay. uh, I did some backpacking trips during hunting season, but hunting season out there is uh, mostly in November. And by that point, we were getting pretty cold. And that's that's more than I want to carry on my back. The equipment you need to stay warm and to hunt on top of that. Lots of guys, if they're going to do that, they either are setting up a camp out of a vehicle or they're taking horses. Yeah. So. Yeah. So was there any artistic impulse that you detected up until 1819, until you kind of stumbled into writing? In class, you know, I enjoyed English. I enjoyed writing okay. fiction, nonfiction, essays, whatever, you know. Uh, again, it's something I could do by myself, mm -hmm. and that had an appeal to it. And I, I've always been a reader, so that's given me a certain proclivity towards writing, I think. I okay. appreciate it, and I have a little bit of talent. Yeah, well, yeah, we're going to get to that um, in a second. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of teeing this up because... Um, I mean, spoiler alert. I mean, the book is fucking incredible. Um, and I want to dive into that a lot more. So, but to tee that up, what kind of stuff were you, were you, did you gravitate towards? What kind of stuff did you read? Oh, you name it, man. I, huh. I was precocious. I started reading, um, Tolkien and Watership Down, things like that when I was about six. And then wow. I, by the time I was in junior high, I was reading Shakespeare and Dante and you name it. Uh, if I could find a good translation, something that, you know, that it's still to this day, actually, uh, out of the Divine Comedy, uh, Dante's epic mm -hmm. poem, the translation matters. You know, uh, I always go for the poetics more than the literal translation. And so you have to have a poet to translate a poet. So that matters. Um, and then like uh, for Shakespeare, if you don't have footnotes explaining the mm. 1600s language um, to this day, a lot of folks uh, as adults would be lost in the sauce. There's just too much unfamiliar vocabulary and too many references that you'd have to be a, a fairly solid European historian to, to really grasp what's going on with the context that these things he's saying are in. So, you know, um, finding a good translation, finding those footnotes was key and still is to this day. Um, I think if I had to pick my favorite book, it's probably uh, Heller's Catch-22. That's uh, uh, yeah, gets me gets me laughing every time. And I, I read that sometime in in high school and it's been uh, it's been one of my favorites ever since. And yet it didn't discourage you from joining the military. Oh, no. Uh, that's a whole different story there. Uh, I joined the military half out of need and half out of desire, I think you could say. Uh, I joined about a year after 9-11, but that was still very much in the front of my mind. I, I took my time because I wasn't sure exactly how things were going to shake out. Um, but 
I did feel what happened on 9-11 was wrong in the in the simplest moralist sense of the word, just wrong. Um, set all the politics aside, and all those people as individuals did not deserve to die. Whatever argument you want to make for who caused what and who pissed who off and all that. Um, and I'm the kind of person that if I'm going to say something is wrong and something needs to be done about it, I'm not going to say you should go do something about it. I'm going to go try to do it myself. So that was part of it. And the other part was just uh, call it sheer financial need. I did four years of college. I was uh, tens of thousands of dollars in debt already. Um, I was at least a solid year still away from getting a degree. And when I did, job prospects were looking slim. Certainly anything that was going to let me pay off my gargantuan loans was very slim. Um, and so, and, and you know, I came from a fairly poor family, a uh, single mother taking care of two kids. We made ends meet, but there wasn't a lot of excess, that's for sure. So my prospects overall were just pretty, pretty dim. Um, and the Army was a way for me to literally get out of financial distress and quote unquote, go see the world. And that's, you know, it worked, that part worked out well for me. They repaid the student loans. They're still, I'm still using GI bill afterwards, you know, so they took care of a lot of schooling for me, which has opened up a lot of doors and provided me with a lot of learning. And then, yeah, you know, I been in, I spent time in, you know, not like an airport stop, something like 30 countries. I don't know. I, I don't, yeah. didn't really keep track, but it's a bunch. Yeah. So Poor boy from the woods in Montana was not going to go do that. There were very few opportunities aside from the military where I was going to go out and see the world. And so it did do sure. that for me. So um, I can hear a, a cynic in the back of my mind. Uh, and I'm going to ask the question that I feel like the cynic would ask. If you had come out of college with an awesome business degree and had a job lined up at JP Morgan, would you still have gone in the army? Uh, that's, that's really impossible to say because I was studying English at the time. <laughs> that was what I was getting closest to. So yeah, I yeah. should have been more specific. The, the prospects of finding a well, a good paying job out of college with an English degree are nil. Basically you teach. Right. And, um, and you don't teach college until you've got a couple more degrees. And, you just don't make any sort of money, certainly not enough to pay off the student loans and have a reasonable life. Yeah. So, no, I was not headed towards J.P. Morgan right. uh, in any any possible uh, fantasy world. So. So, so, so let me rephrase. I guess the question would be, yeah. regardless, um, if the money hadn't been an issue, if the economic need hadn't yep. been there, do you think you still would have joined the Army? I think so, because like, the first half. You okay. Know, uh, okay. I, I I felt that um, measures needed to be taken, and I felt like if I'm going to say that, I need to go be part of the effort to take care of it. I, you know, I literally felt that the people that were responsible for that needed to die. Um, and so when I joined, uh, I didn't. I literally had no idea what I was going to do. I went to the in processing and spent a day doing all kinds of tests and everything, exams. And then the recruiter, the the guy who assigns you to your MOS, sat me yeah. down and he said, uh, "I got a great job for you. You can be a an air traffic controller. There's a big bonus, and 
it's a really easy job. And I said, nope. He's like, are you sure? I said, yeah, I'm sure. I don't know what I want, but I know that's not it. Because that is not that was not going to fulfill that purpose. I am. Yeah. I might be part of the effort, but I wanted to go take direct action um, in the non-military sense of the direct action, I guess, or I guess in that way too. Yeah. Um, so he ran through a list. He started going down the list, and I no, no, I don't want to be a truck driver. I don't want to be this. And he said, you can be a special forces recruit. And I literally had no idea what that was. And uh, he said, well, I said, what is it? He said, you you jump out of airplanes and and do, you know, kind of hua stuff. And I was like, okay, sounds good. And I, you know, I, I didn't have a, a clue. And that's how I fell into a, a whole career in my military time. And then after when I was doing um, defense contracting. So on, on a whim. So had so you had not been exposed to very much military influence growing up? Zero. No, I, I don't know if I was the first person in my family, but I was, I'm was i the first person that I know of wow. to join. Um, I want to ask two level-setting questions before we get back into the military piece. And I'm, I'm asking because I feel like they play a not insignificant role in your writing. Um, were you raised religious? No, I was... Uh, reading as much as I did, I developed okay. a, a distaste of religion early. Huh. Okay. Um, that being, uh, I, I developed a distaste for organized religion sure. early. Sure. I'd like to think that I have a great deal of faith, but I don't believe that what I have faith in jives very well with any organized religion that I've huh. come across. And I've, I've, I've read all the holy books, checking them out, you know? Right. Right. And um, I don't think that the religions line up very well with their initial prophets and their messages, especially Christianity, Islam, Judaism, to a certain extent. They have taken the initial message and um, of, of, you know, in Christ's case, peace and goodwill, and they have... Um, use that to spread a much more human agenda of um, the, the they've used it to a means as opposed to an end if that makes sense it's I, I think that he was stating the end state that should be strived towards not uh, something that should be used as a pillar to support an institution did you find any value in faith in any, were there any texts that you read or was there anything, what was your operating system? Was there a philosophical basis that you gravitated towards? What, what yeah. kind of took hold with you? Nietzsche, uh, basically. And not, not the Nietzsche that mi people misunderstand and misquote and think he's a Nazi, but the actual, uh, his philosophy of, um, uh, the one that everybody knows is uh, Amor Fate, love your fate. Uh, you know, this is your life. Live it well in a nutshell. Uh, I, I find a lot of um, value in that. And, you know, he, he also wrote about how being religious, regardless of your religion, pretty much all of them are talking about a life other than the one you're living here in afterlife. And as soon as you start putting value on that, you devalue this life. You, If you start living for a next life, this life has been 
demoted to a certain degree. Um, I'd rather go whole hog while I'm here and um, live as much and live as well as I can while I'm here. How firmed up were those thoughts in your mind prior to being in the military? Um, some of and that's behind the notion of going to see the world. You know, that's that's part and parcel to it. Um, I'd already read a certain amount of uh, Nietzsche and other uh, existentialist philosophers, but I was young and, and I was absorbing it as a 19 and 20 year old might. Um, but the idea that my life was going to be restricted based on my financial situation that goes counter to the idea of living fully and living well. You can still live a restricted life and live it well, but there's so much more out there. So it, it was it was there that that was what was driving my idea to go see other people, see other cultures, um, and and get that perspective that folks who never leave their home state often mm -hmm. lack. The second question I just wanted to touch on briefly, did you, it didn't sound like there was a lot of TV and movies and video games in your childhood. Is that right? Um, didn't have electricity until I was 10, I think. Um, we'd hike over to some folks who had uh, solar down the valley mm. and uh, we watched the same dozen movies a dozen, 15, 20 times. That was a special occasion. We'd go watch the Super Bowl at a, another friend's house. And that was pretty much it until I was about 10. By the time I was 12 or 13, uh, I was watching like Saturday morning cartoons or something one weekend day. And I got done and it was like 1130 or noon. And I it was a beautiful day. And I went outside. And I was like, holy shit, I just blasted half a day of my life. I'm not doing that anymore. So I basically minimalized it ever since. Uh, don't have a TV in the house. Mm -hmm. so. Did you, um, this is kind of a weird question. I'm going to see if I can articulate this. Well, by the time you started opening your aperture and going into the military and, and, you know, kind of drinking in more, if not the full spectrum of life, at least a lot more aspects of life than what you'd have been exposed to up to till that point. Um, <laughs> I can't think of a better way to say this. Who did you not like? And I say, let me, let me caveat, let me contextualize what I mean by that. I feel like all of us, when we grow up, um, well, maybe not all of us, many of us grow up with a chip on our shoulder, that there's something we're getting away from or something we are trying to outrun or just something that repels us. Some we were raised in this kind of house. So we're like, ah, I'm, I'm chafing against that. Or these are this is the kind of high school I was in. These are the kind of folks that I was around. This is the kind of small town or big city um, uh, environment that I grew up in that I want to get away from, or, or at least push back against a little. What was that for you? Was there something that you pushed back against, and what was it? And did that bias ever change? Did you ever reconcile oh. with it? It's absolutely changed, and I've certainly reconciled with my biases from when I was in high school and also in that first stint in college. Um, I did want to get out of my high school and my little town that I grew up in. 
Um, I'm not sure I was against the prevailing mindset and uh, way of life, but it sure didn't appeal to me. Um, mm. The the local boys who stayed local, um, who found local jobs in the woods and never left and never grew, you know, I knew that wasn't for me. Um, I'm not sure that I was against that. Um, but if I was now, I, you know, I just, I, I've certainly accepted the idea that everybody just basically needs to follow their own path. Uh, and if that's good for them to do, um, then by all means have at it. Um, you know, I'm, uh, I, I don't know where I fall on the political spectrum. I honestly don't, because I don't pay much attention to politics as they are. But uh, I would very much like to be left alone to a great deal to do things as I please. And I'm more than happy to extend others the same courtesy. Um, so I hide out up here on the hillside. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I, I don't just isolate myself. I interact with folks all the time, but I try not to pass judgment on what they do. And I ask that they not have judgment on me, at least come and tell me that I am, you know, you can't do this or you should not do that. Um, what I'm doing is good for me. I would appreciate if, you know, what's doing, what you're doing is good for you. I'm happy to let you have at it. I'd really like to just have folks uh, respect that autonomy a little bit more, I guess. I think that's about as good a segue as we can get for the book. Because in that context, it feels like um, the premise of your book, which you're not exactly coy about saying, is, you know, this is a primer on how to deal with veterans and to start that dialogue. And it seems that the implicit task there is to communicate <laughs> a lot of things, almost a, lo a lot of concepts, a lot of feelings, a lot of emotions. And hearing what you just said, it makes me think you're, you want people to understand this so that you can be left the fuck alone and you don't have to explain it all the time. And if you're looking cross-eyed at somebody, people can go, oh, well, this is why. And we just have a common understanding. It's developing a common operating picture among across society so that we can all be left the fuck alone and there's no misunderstanding or misinterpretation. Am I painting with too broad a brush on that or is that? Roughly. Maybe, maybe too broad, but you're you're hitting some points that are definitely true. Um, huge into communication. I can't stand writers who seem to write for themselves. Mm -hmm. I I want my book to go out and be read, but I also want, uh, and I think this is fairly universal. I want a certain sense of understanding for myself. Uh, I want people to understand me, whether that's for so that they will leave me alone or not. Um, I don't know. I think that by and large, it's hard to know with a capital K anyone else, know them well, right? Sure, sure. I would like a greater degree of knowing, of understanding between individuals. If those individuals are, uh, if it's the civilian veteran divide that I'm trying to close, if I'm trying to uh, increase the amount of understanding between that. Great. But it's important that you understand that 
some of the book is fairly factual. These things happen to me. Some of it is um, factual. These things happen to other people I know. Some of it is started in fact, and I went from there and got into imagination to try and communicate a feeling or something like that. And some of it's purely made up for the for the same reasons. I I, I have this thing I want to illustrate. I want to I want to paint a picture, um, but it didn't actually happen. But this is how I'm going to get towards that truth. So. It's not just that they're going to understand me. It's going to. It's more like, in general, we can we can try to understand each other better. And as the book has, um, as the book came together, and as I matured over the last few years, especially, the understanding has to happen on both sides. You know, um, uh, many many veterans are just as uh, misunderstanding of civilians. And frequently as discrediting of the of civilian values and civilians in general as the um, civilians can be of veterans. Do you think it is an apples to apples comparison? Do you think that that it's weighted equally on both sides? That that the misunderstanding that that um, the veterans have as steep a hill to climb to understand civilians as vice versa? Um, well, I guess that depends on the background of the civilians and veterans in question. Mm -hmm. If you're talking about a guy who's done 26 years in the military and um, since he was 18, and the bulk of that was in a special unit of some kind, that's a big hill to climb. Um, that person is institutionalized to the point that they believe that frequently, not again, this is painting with broad strokes. Sure, sure. Um, they, they, those guys I know have a rough time. They, they have a big hill to climb in terms of understanding and valuing civilian life because their entire adult life and, and a long duration has been military and, and military values, um, military way of doing things. This is what we think is important, and so on. Um, on the other side of the coin, I suppose that a civilian who's reached that same age in their late 40s or something like that and has never interacted with or thought about uh, what a veteran's life is and what they've gone through, what they're thinking, is, that's an equally large hill to climb. Um, there's a great deal of ground to be made up in both cases. Um, trying to get each side to see the value in in the other, what what they think is important, how they act and how they do things, getting to see that that is also valuable. Um, it sometimes proves very difficult. Some folks are much more um, open to the idea that there's more than one good way to do things mm -hmm. or more than one way to um, value, for example, like courage. There's multiple types of courage. And a military guy might think of that only as like physical bravery. But um, what I came to understand, I think this is in, it's sort of in the book in that poem, two or more, is that the courage that it takes for a poet to pour their soul out 
and then get up and read it in front of an audience, that's also courage. And of a no lesser quality, just different courage. Getting getting the veterans to understand that is just as difficult as getting civilians who've never been in physical danger to understand the value of physical courage or, or what people call battlefield brave, like bravery. Do you think it is? Do you think it's it's equal courage? I think that for the individuals in question, it's absolutely equal. I think that um, the individual is plopped down in a situation where physical bravery is required and their life's on the line. I think for that individual, it's probably just as um, demanding of a situation as it is for another, a different individual who's flopped down and for the first time in his or her life is going to go up and talk about their most intimate feelings in front of a crowd. There's a there's a great deal of variance in those two individuals before they enter that situation. But I think um I think the courage required given given their this separate starting points, the courage required is probably close to equal. I ask that because I'm thinking like when you're saying that I'm thinking, yes, potentially somebody doing a poetry reading, but also, you know, in this day and age of social media sharing influencer culture and all that, it's like, there seems to be a pretty, um, pretty high floor and a pretty well-accepted ceiling for exposing yourself and exposing your ideas or your emotional truth, let's say, to a public uh, to an, uh, uh, public of strangers. Um, whereas it seems to me that the veteran experience is such rarefied air that, I mean, unless you get it made into a movie, which is relatively few and far between, um, there isn't really an understanding or an appreciation for and when I say appreciation, I don't mean respect, but just an understanding, an ability to comprehend it. It seems like it's a different quality. I don't know. But there's there's a big difference between uh, putting a bunch of personal information out online and doing it to a room full of live people in front of you. Uh, having people know it is one thing. Being the individual in question, telling them that in, in person is a different yeah. deal. I think that's why... Um, for a lot of people, going to a live production of a play mm-hmm. is much more moving than watching it on TV. You get you get the whole affect of that actor, that human person is in front of you um, without yeah. any filters, without any edits, without any cuts to a different person that like you get in film. You see the whole thing. You get to see what they're doing when they would be, quote unquote, off camera. Sure. Um, and, you know, I've talked to a lot of people who have said that that's the case, you know, that there's a very real human value in having human being to human being face to face. And it just goes away online. It's funny. Uh, I, um, quick digression, but it makes me think uh, Patsy Rodenberg, the very famous voice coach for um, Central School of Drama in London, who then has taught a lot in the U.S., but she talked about they did um some sort of empirical study about the stress levels of an actor before they went on stage again on stage versus on film and saying that it was the emotional equivalent of a car crash um, in terms of whatever the brain waves or the spikes were. And she talked about that 
because she had specifically worked with Ian Holm, uh, the actor who played the old Bilbo in the Lord of the Rings movies and, you know, right. had done a million other things, but he was, no, he had a notorious case of stage fright. Um, you know, he was a Royal Shakespeare company member. Um, and then he just couldn't get on stage for the longest time. And it was okay. Cause he was doing a lot of TV and film, but um, for him to get back on stage, he, she worked with him a lot on his breathing and being able to get through it because of the emotional spike of going on stage. And that's where she referenced this study. She said, Oh, it's like, it's like a car crash. And I thought of that because in my time acting, I mean, certainly there was, and I was acting before I was in the military, but I was, I mean, certainly it was a significant emotional event that even more so uh, to do stand up was a significant emotional event. But when I look at it in comparison with the significant emotional events in the military, I was like, yeah, those were significant emotional events as a civilian. But that versus the life and death stakes that came later, I'm like, well, it's no comparison. And it, and to me, it actually, I was like, now coming back into the arts, it's like, man, it's a lot easier now. Because now right. after being exposed to the level of life and death threats, you're like, oh, well, shit. I mean, this, yeah, there's a little bit of nerves, but man, it's, it's I'm good. This is, this is going to be fine. Nobody's shooting at you. Nobody that's, what we, and, that's what we always say. Yeah. Well, and and you know what, and you know what it is. Also, it's it's that it's constructive versus destructive. You know what's the, your best case scenario? I mean, I don't have to tell you. I'm just pontificating. But I mean, if it's you know the best case scenario in a military situation is like we're just trying to get to normal. We're trying to keep the bad guys down. We're trying to maintain a level of pacifism, and we're going to have to do that by force. But but we don't really get anything out of this. We're just trying to prevent bad shit a lot of the time. Whereas with acting or the arts, it's like, well, I'm trying to actively get a construct positive out of this. I'm pushing for a positive. And if I don't do anything, nothing bad is going to happen, but it's just, there's no forward progress. So there's, there's an, an innate um, pressure, but it's a positive pressure because it's going, well, I'm trying to achieve something great and construct something. That wouldn't otherwise exist. Whereas in the military, it's like I'm trying to prevent bad shit, and that's my good day. Does that make sense? Am I making? I, I've never thought this out loud before. It does, but uh, you and I, Chris, we're in a, a you know not a unique position, but we're in a, a minority. We've we've done both. We've done the arts, or are doing the arts, and we've done the military. Um, again, for the civilian who has never done the military. There are there are individuals who are going to have the same physiological right. response. Yeah. They're going to black out. They're going to get the tunnel vision. You know, they yeah. are going yeah. to be shaken all over the place. They're going to break out in the cold sweats. You name it. Their their body is going to shut down in much the same way. For those individuals, it's much the same as for yes. some individuals in combat. No, the experience I don't think is the same. But for those individuals, I think the amount of courage required is very similar. So would I be a dick <laughs> if, if, if I were to go, yeah, physiologically it's the same, but let's get real and let's actually look at the data points here and go, one of these is, is going to be more significant empirically. And I get subjectively, it might not be, but objectively, one of these is going to have a higher stakes attached to it. And I think, it, it, and I say, would I be a dick for saying that? But I guess I really mean is, and again, to get to your book, I think what you articulate is that, look, 
of course, subjectively, we all have traumas. We all have highs and lows. We all have things that loom large in our personal histories. But there are objective ways to look at that and go, I get it. If you've never driven a car before and you've lived in New York City your whole life, it's a big deal to drive a car. I get it. I get you'll get cold sweats. I get that'll be nerve wracking and all that. There has to be some degree of objective truth, though, that goes. But that doesn't mean you're necessarily should consider yourself having had the same depth of experience and the same resonance as a combat veteran and um, or even a non-combat veteran in many cases, but having gone through other types and higher degrees of significant emotional events. And I don't know. I mean, but I, I and I guess what I'm saying is I'm biased. I'm biased towards the veteran. Yeah. Uh, would I be wrong? I mean, because I, I, I feel like that's an important thing. And I, I guess that comes back to what we talked about civilians and veterans understanding each other. I feel like there has to be some acknowledgement and that sometimes we as veterans are very magnanimous about going, hey, look, I get it. You know, starting a business is hard. It is. It's fucking brutal. But again, it's a positive brutality. Yep. You're trying to accomplish something good, and that's great, and that can be a struggle versus a negative of like, I'm trying to just come home alive. And my win is just getting up and living the next day. And that's a different kind of stressor and a different kind of emotional impact. So I guess I'm saying, can we be more biased? <laughs> can we be more biased I, on behalf of the veteran? Yeah, I don't sure. know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm down, man. I'm tracking. Um, and just very briefly, I point out that that guy that's never driven the car before, he may very well die. You know, sure. I had zero experience and a bad case of the nerves. He's in a in a dangerous situation, uh, as dangerous as some of the bullshit firefights I've been in, where you know somebody's six hundred meters away with an AK and doesn't know how to shoot it, and their rounds going somewhere over your head, and nobody even bothers taking cover. You know, at least that dangerous. Um, that being said, if we flip it and look at the other side, if the if the um, events that we're looking at are somewhat dissimilar the the events that are inspiring this courage or requiring courage to get through then let's look at the other side of it and see what it takes um is the amount of effort it takes to appreciate the courage on the other side of the coin mm -hmm. the same mm -hmm. uh is it harder or the same degree of difficulty for a veteran to appreciate that other courage call it what you will as it is for a civilian to appreciate um, things that you and I have gone through, physical courage. Because what I found in academia is, by and large, they don't appreciate it. Right. They don't appreciate it because they really don't understand what it takes. But what I've seen from the veterans is they don't appreciate the courage it takes to get up and do a poetry reading or be an actor. So those two... Um, efforts, those two difficulties are roughly, I would say, very similar as well. And and I'm working on that side of the coin too, or at least I'm trying to, to not to maybe, maybe the courageous, courage requiring situations are not equal, but the difficulty in crossing the boundary and appreciating the other side's form of courage is certainly very similar from what I've seen. I, I run into academics all the time who, uh, you know, I tell them things like, yeah, I, I got shot a couple times and they can't get beyond a nervous chuckle and 
an ambition of, I literally have no idea what that would be like, but they're certainly not um, aware, let alone impressed by the amount of courage that it would require in those situations. They have no perspective. Same thing for the veteran, except for they're going to be much more dismissive, typically, stereotypically, maybe. Uh, Hey, man, it takes a certain amount of balls to get up in front of people and talk about, especially like, you know, the thing that I'm doing, I think it would probably be similar to stand-up, like you said. Uh, a lot of it's coming directly from you, as opposed to from a script yep. or from some other book that you didn't write. This is this is me. I'm laying out there in front of live people. And that takes courage, man. And the veteran is going to say, whatever, dude, nobody's shooting at you. Got it. But you still have to understand that for that other individual... That's that's a certain amount of very legitimate courage. No, no, and that is fair. Um, I want to, I want to let's let's dive into some of the nitty gritty of the book because cool. the book is nothing if not full of nitty gritty that I think is worth getting into. And I don't want to, I I, I really want to pay that compliment. Um, I'm saying it in the intro uh, when I record the intro after this interview, um, but. I'll say it. I'll say it here. I mean, look, I've read an awful lot of veteran poetry, and um, you know, there's such a there's such dynamic poetry coming out of the veteran community. I honestly, I'm not an expert, but I feel like veteran community is generating far more poetry than the Ivy League at this point. I could be wrong on that. I don't know if that's actually true, but I feel like certainly the 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 radical increase in veterans picking up a pen and trying to um, you know, capture their thoughts and emotions. It seems like that's on a radical uptick. Absolutely. I have not read a piece yet with the, that captures the sensory experience in a way that's not no shit there. I was, but that actually does communicate why the veteran that you see standing peacefully in front of you might might be a little different than how you would expect act a little differently think a little differently see things a little differently than how you might expect and i i have not read a book like that i'm gonna read you back to you if that's not too weird for one second because there's a point there's this was the first moment that i mean i read the book in one sitting um last night and the very first thing that made me go this is different shit than i've read before um was in your poem winning which is one of the first poems in the book but the verse last mistake he'll ever make we'd quip looking down at sockets missing eyes and thighs blown open like exploded footballs Muscles raw, exposed, and bloody as a steak. Strips of cloth and shards of door. Splintered, slimy bone. And just plain grit. All ground into his leg meat. The filthiest of hamburger. We'd sing, when we come a-knockin', your house will be rockin'. When we come a-knockin', your house will be rockin'. Don't answer the door, because we're going to come right in. And then he goes on from there. When I read that, I was like, it's it's not just the detail. It's not just the 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 gory um, description. It's the takeaway. It's the emotional takeaway. 
that those words were the first time and the first of many times throughout the book that I was like, that's going to leave an indelible imprint on a reader's mind that I think will make any reader veteran civilian, but go, yeah, I got to extend a little bit of grace to this person because you don't know what's going on. You don't know what they're seeing. You don't know what thoughts keep popping up in their heads. Um, I'm going to ask the, I guess, more obvious question I could ask. How long did it take you to write this book? Um, the poems came together over several years. Okay. I sent uh, most of what's in the book to a contest a couple of years ago. Didn't win, but one of the publishers wanted to publish it anyway. I said, great. And then I said, oh, shit. I have to take this mess of a bunch of poetry and make it into a book. The book came together in about, call it a year after that, okay. where I I made it into something, I hope, cohesive, or at least somewhat cohesive. I'm not a huge fan of poetry collections that are just, these are the 30 poems I've written in the last two years about this, that, and the other. Right. So a lot, um, some a little bit got taken out, and some got added to, um, and a lot of the framing stuff it went in there. The definitions at the beginning, the footnotes, the section names, all that came about during um, make it a book phase. Okay. And how long had you been writing poetry at at, at the point the book came out? How many years into um, were you? Well. I took a basic poetry workshop the first time I was in school Okay. Um, when I was, you know, 20-ish or something like that. Uh, but then I didn't really write any poetry until after I was done contracting. My twins were born. Um, we were living in Germany, and I was basically spending nine-tenths of my time in Pakistan. And I decided I didn't want to do that anymore. We, um, I quit the job. We moved back to the States, moved to Maine. I went back to school a few days later and to to become a writer, you know, with the expressed intent that that was what I wanted to do then. That was 2016, fall of 2016. Um, I also started, you mentioned that there's a, a huge proliferation of veteran poetry. I think some of that's coming about through therapy. Uh, PTSD has become less stigmatized. That's also something I'm trying to help with that effort. Therapy, the idea of going to therapy as a soldier is starting to become destigmatized. And one of the, it's, it's a tool in the therapist's arsenal to have you write in one medium or another about your experiences. Um, I had a therapist fairly early on who suggested write it however you want, write fiction, write an actual factual account of what you mm -hmm. remember, write poetry, however it comes out. And so I did all three, and that's when the poetry started. My A lot of the poems in this book started coming out with that in the back of my mind that these are things that I want to communicate that are going to, it's going to be good for me to communicate them. So since 2016 is basically when the poems started in the book started coming. Being that a lot of this was generated or well, generated or instigated or or motivated from a therapeutic place. How much did you were you investing in studying poetry like the form 
and uh, the structure and all that. I mean, you were an English major. You weren't naive to it, obviously. I mean, were you continuing to go, hey, this is awesome, but I can see the difference between my therapeutic writing and what it would need to be honed into for an unknown public? Um, let's see. Uh, poetry is another thing that has a stigma, especially among men. You know, it's it's not manly. Um, I never really bought into that. I was always curious. And so I was, I was reading, you know, Shakespeare's written in verse, it's sure. written in iambic pentameter. Um, reading Dante, which is, oh, I forget what the name of that, Terzarima, I think is the name of the rhyme scheme. And s- reading it with a consciousness towards how it was written at a very young age um, and impressed by it and so on and so forth. So I was reading and appreciating and paying attention to poetry for a long time. Um, Then when I came back uh, and started, finished my undergrad, did uh, 99.9% of a master's degree, and then did my MFA, um, I took creative writing classes. I took classes that focused on single poets. I took classes that focused on a couple of poets. I did an entire semester in my master's programs on Adrian Rich. I did another one on HD and some fruitcake, Duncan, Duncan, who I don't appreciate Duncan's work. Um, But and and others, you know, I I took a modernism class that contained um, Yeats and all kinds of the World War One poets and more HD and that sort of stuff. I was always invested in trying to learn as much as I could in the in my MFA, the Master of Fine Arts. My emphasis was in fiction, um, but I took I went to every poetry lecture. I took a poetry. What was it? Poetry into prose or prose into poetry class. Huh. where They took a bunch of fiction writers and talked about basic poetry. And and that was way too basic for me. I was like, OK, yeah, I. I got it. And at the end of that class, the poet who was running it said she she came and told me, she said, anytime you want, you, you can you can join any poetry class you want in this program. And I said, hey, that's thank you so much. And they gave me a lot of uh, a lot of support, her and then the program in general, the um, the kernel of that really long poem, the, the titular poem yeah. came about during that program, the first 10 pages or something. And I read five pages of it. Uh, at a student reading night and everybody of course is polite but i had a lot of very enthusiastic response and you know i had i've had a lot of people tell me you know i like your fiction but man poetry is your thing so i kept kept doing the poetry and i was interested so um is fiction still the goal is there fiction books in you that you want to get out yeah and they're out i've got a a full novel that i've just completed the first full revision of so i did a draft and then did one full revision um and i've got a full collection of short stories that are in varying degrees of uh fixing you know i've got 15 short stories some of which i haven't touched in years since i learned how to write and they're fairly terrible and some (laughs) of them i worked on more recently i i appreciate both maybe equally fiction and poetry they both allow you to do different things, to play in different ways. Um, that being said, if you're ever going to earn any money writing, 
you're never going to do it through poetry. Yeah. So there's yeah. that's in the back of my hand too, my sure. back of my head. If I'm going to sell a book, I mean, actually get paid for it, it won't be poetry. You know, the the poetry buddy is just not there. My <laughs> wife and I joking about all the time waiting for the big poetry buddy to come in. Well, so. that that's the uh, I think Dead Reckoning had that in one of their books where they said all the uh, all the successful poets have become songwriters. And, uh, you know, yeah, you gotta, you gotta follow where the money is. Um, I, I don't want to gloss over this cause, uh, but the volume of writing that you've done now in the past seven years, a book going back over all these short stories, a published work, a collection of poems and all that, where was the writing in your military career? Did you cut it out? Did you have to shift gears completely or was it something you kept coming back to and, you know, had a, a a consistent presence throughout your military career and your contracting career. Inconsistent presence. I, okay. I journaled some. Okay. I was on an awful lot of very long, slow C-130 rides. And there's only so much mission prep you can do prior to landing in Africa to do a JSET. I'm ready. I got it. Okay. So now I still have six hours to kill. I'll, you know, write down some thoughts, what's going on. Um but the the ramblings of a, a mid twenty year old male are just that they're they're ramblings. They're interesting to go back over because they do jog my memory about things like that. Right. But uh, and uh, if I'm ever at a loss for material, I can certainly go back and find a spark, find a, a seed to plant and grow from. Um, but that's that's about all the utility that I get out of them. Um, and it was very intermittent, you know. Okay. When I was busy or under too much stress there are too many things going on i just drop it for months at a time sure and there i'm assuming that it was proper journaling i mean you weren't paying attention to form you weren't trying to put into poetry it was just capturing the moment right everything from something sort of cohesive to just random quotes heard on the street to you know fucked up shit said in the team room you name it got you got you this is kind of a, a weird question. I've asked it before on the show um, for certain folks. And I feel like I should ask it for you, being that you had an English degree or you were pushing towards an English degree and you're in the army and you're, um, w- was being a writer in the back of your mind? I mean, had that dream ever really died or were you like, it's just, I'm not there yet. And there's, there's step one and step two, I could go be a writer or had you jettisoned that dream completely um it was definitely present in my mind okay. uh, a lot of the writers that i appreciated before i left had either been in the military or had gone out and lived fully you know uh tolkien was in world war one hemingway was all over the place uh world war one and then you know uh leading some sort of bizarre drunken civilian charge into paris in world war ii um and and in between you know traveling all over the place and killing every animal in the world uh which you know uh think about it what you will it's certainly adventurous um most of the writers that i appreciate if they're not writing from experience that's fine but they have gone out and done something there are very few academics who I pick up their book and I'm like, wow, this is really good. Uh, right. Some of them write well, but they frequently leave me feeling pretty 
there's no emotional transfer there. I don't, I don't get any spark. Sure. So, so with that being the case that you, it was always in the back of your mind that you would return to writing at some point. This is a weird question. I'll grant you. Was there ever a thought that if something happens to me on a deployment, obviously it's going to be a shame for multiple reasons, but also because I'm leaving a lot of meat on the bone. There's stories that I will never get to tell. There's opportunities that I will have permanently lost that are in the back of my mind. And this will basically be um, an unborn career that was already festering in my mind, but I'll never get it out because something will have happened to me. Was that ever a thought in your mind? No, actually, okay. that sounds um, sounds very foreign to the way I think. Interesting. Uh, okay. Sounds like you're laying down seeds of potential future regret. I just, I that doesn't ever really come into my mind. Um, you know, I went into the military thinking there was a fair chance that I was going to die. You know, I was reasonably okay with that. Uh, the more mature version of that is uh, it still would have been a lot easier for me to be killed than have my friend killed. That was way harder. Um, I didn't know that going in, but I sure as hell found that out. Um, but the idea that I was going to miss out on telling a story or the world was going to miss out on some story of mine or something like that, like wasted experience, not told. No, I, I don't. Mm. I don't, I don't hold myself that highly maybe is one way to think of it. You know, no, that's healthy. That's really healthy. Um, I guess I shouldn't gloss over this. I, I, I want to dive more into the book, but because I'm doing what I always do and completely junking the chronological order of your, of my guest's life, uh, I, I do want to talk about, especially because of the mindset that you had going into the military where you hadn't been surrounded by a lot of military presence. You weren't 100% sure what Special Forces was. You go into the 18 X-ray program. What did you think when you got there? How did that hit you? Was, was, it, a, was it a blast of water in the face, or was it like, oh, no, this is I, I, I'm water and I found my level? I mean, this, this seems like it all makes sense. There were times during the three years I was in training that it was challenging, but there was very few times where I was not laughing. Uh, I got in great shape before I went. We, the group that I was going into basic with, my my platoon, when we went, we improv, we did our week of in-processing, and then they didn't have a slot for us for the next two weeks. We were in holding at the processing battalion for two weeks. By the time they let us out of there and put us in a platoon, they were fucked because we had all bonded. And we had become this cohesive group of young men. And the drill sergeants had nothing on us. They would smoke the shit out of us. And we would just laugh because uh, I think it was an even split. I think almost exactly half of us were 18 x-rays. And we were like, hey, PT us, dude. Good deal. I got busted while I was in the training bay for putting all the issue stuff in my green uh, um, kit bag and rucking up and down the stairwell. And they came and told me I couldn't do that because it was a, a dangerous. They were afraid I was going to be a heat casualty. I was like, dude. I'm sitting on my ass. I'm about to go do some yeah. actual legit shit. I have to stay in shape. Yeah. They're like, well, you can run in the morning. I was like, I, I've I've done that. I got it. We would we'd push all the bunk beds together in the middle of the bay, run laps around it for hours. We had wrestling matches. We, we you know, we played. So by the time we got to the actual basic thing, it was it was a joke. Smoke us more, man. Have yeah. have at it. 
Yeah. Um, and I I snuck a snuck a sandbag into my rucksack so that the training rucksack weighed 60 pounds instead of 35. Almost killed myself the first time I did it. Um, but and then later they found out about it and they thought I was I, I had it in there to hide something in. They poured my sandbag out thinking I was like hiding tobacco or some shit. I don't know. I was like, no, dude, it's it's my sandbag. It's for weight. Yeah. And uh yeah. So that was a joke. We got up to um to brag and started the actual Q course. And it was it was uh a little more professional. You know, a lot of the cadre were tabbed, um, but it was sort of the same thing. Throw this at me. It's all good training and it's prepping me for the next thing. Have at it. Yeah. And so I'm not sure where I started on this. I kind of started rambling. No, no, it's but, a, no, it's but great. that was that was yeah. kind of my mindset and the way I was going through it. Did you see it as a career when you got no. in? No, I didn't see it as a career because I'm, I'm not, I don't really have a career mindset. Again, I think that goes back to kind of the idea of living fully. I'm not sure I can have a career doing one thing. I think there's too much to experience out there. By the time I got out, I had learned the bitter truth that being a Green Beret was not going to get me in on a mission to go shoot the people who are responsible for 9-11. I needed to go to CAG. By the time I learned that, I had been shot twice and my left leg was fairly fucked up. And going to CAG was no longer an option if it was something I had decided to do. I was fairly bitter about that. I, I threw myself in as hard as I could to try and get in a unit that would have a shot at doing what I thought needed done. And it turned out that I was not, not there. I was going to have to go to another selection, another training course, pass all of that. And then I was going to have a, a shot at the actual game. That, that kind of, that rubbed me the wrong way. I, they, they were misusing us as Green Berets in Afghanistan. We weren't doing a lot of winning hearts and minds. We were doing direct action. We, yeah. we, they could have put uh, a really good infantry unit or Rangers in there and basically done most of what we were doing. I'm not saying they would have done it quite as well, but still, they were not using us the way we should. So, so since you weren't, didn't have a career mindset, going into it was there a little bit i can't think of a better analogy than uh, this is my terminology that i so bear that in mind if this is more inaccurate than it should be i always think of it like a bank robbery it's like look i'm here for a limited amount of time i'm gonna steal as many school slots as many this as many that and make experiences as possible put me everywhere go 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 because i'm on the clock and i'm not doing this for 20 years was there that mindset or was it a little bit more passive? Was it, hey, I'll, I'll take what comes and, you know, I'll ride this out. And when my fun card's been punched, I move on to the next thing. It was it was very active, very aggressive for a different reason. I wanted to okay. be in the place that I needed to be to go do those missions. Okay. Um, I, I, um, I ended up, there's a couple of different tracks you can sort of land on. You can land on the Intel track. You can land on the... Um, direct action type track. I landed on the uh, direct action track just because of what was available for schools initially. Um, but then it turned out that I had a certain ability doing shooting stuff. And so by the time it came down to us getting slots to the premier shooting school, um, 
it, they were an extreme rarity for a line company or a line uh, team to get slots to this school. We happened to be the only team in the company that was present, I believe. So they both came to my team. We had two slots. Team sergeant tells us in the morning, you know, I got to pick who these two, who's going. And, you know, I'm thinking about it. Uh, so have that in mind. Well, I went back over to my side of the team room for about 20 minutes and kind of thought it over. And I went back over and told them, I said, you're going to send me to the to um, Sephardic. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I said, yep. And he said, why is that? I said, I'm the only one you got who can pass. And at that point, I had earned enough reputation and trust on the team that he he saw the truth of that. He sent two of us and sure and shit, I was the only one who passed. So after that, it was it wasn't carte blanche. But uh, if I said that um, so and so needed to be trained up on this, we were going to train him up on this. If we got downrange and I pointed out that there was a reason this mission should not be done the way it was. We were doing our mission planning to do it. I, I got a lot of a lot of listening to after that. Ended up kind of fucking us over because I I was overly aggressive. I got my teammate killed. I planned that mission. You know, um, I developed the intel for it and planned it. And then um, same thing five weeks later when I got shot the second time. Again, I, I developed the intel. I said, hey, look, they, they meet in this village every Friday for prayer. And, you know, let's go set up a, a observer site on the hill above them. And when they're there, drop a bomb on their heads. And uh, things went sideways um, again. And I got wounded and another guy got wounded. And it was it was because it, it was basically because I was pushing us forward because that was what I was there to do was as I was there to go. Um, quote unquote rights and wrongs and if they weren't going to let me chase Al-Qaeda and I had to deal with you know the Taliban guys who are paying the local farmers and the local farmers okay fine we're going to go do it Um, so you know uh, but it was never it was never a passive just waiting and live out my time it was always driving forward for that that one purpose were you the team Fox no, I, that's okay. the intel side. Right, right, right. Um, but so, were you a Delta? What was your yeah. What was your specialty? Okay. Yeah, I was a medic. Yeah. I know you said three years, so I was like, yeah, it seems like that was a be enough time to get a Delta course in there. Um, oh God, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> throughout all the training, and certainly the deployments, did you start to? How much did you change? Did you feel like there was a refining of your mindset and that there was, you know, like that original, I think, Latin definition of education was something about it's not, there's not knowledge being laid on to you. It's everything else being stripped away and your true self is coming to the forefront. And that's the definition of education. Did you kind of feel that? Or did you feel like there was a different you and that there was a little bit of a gear shift and you're like, I'm just not the same person that I was before I was in? Or something else. Despite not really knowing what I was getting into, there wasn't a lot of uh, naivete on my part. I had a very realistic mindset um, or understanding of the world. So I can't I can't speak really to the the stripping away to reveal my true self. Um, 
I went in a realist. I came out a bitter realist, maybe would be one way to put it. Mm. Um, there was the bitterness of realizing that I wasn't going to be able to um, do what I, I went in to do. So that was a, a learning and a change on my part. Um, but as far as like, did I change? Yeah, I, I came out of it with PTSD, you know, sure. uh, not sleeping and, and getting angry at the drop of a hat. So there was that change. Uh, that's not exactly what I think you were asking, though, like change to me as an individual. Or let's say even your self-perception that you think of yourself differently yeah. than you have before. I wouldn't say so. I I, I guess, you know, I'm, I, I was fairly grounded when I went in at almost 22, and that served me well. I learned... I learned things about the army and about the world, but I, there wasn't a lot that I learned about myself. Um, I, I guess I, I did learn that, you know, holy shit, dude, um, you're, you're overly aggressive. Uh, you are willing to put yourself and your team in harm's way to a point where people are dying. I didn't never would have thought that of me going in as the, the quiet loner, that I was before for the most part. So that was, that was definitely something that I, I learned through my experiences. What was the second and third order effects of that epiphany or that realization as horrible as it was to get there? But did it change uh, anything? Yeah, absolutely. I, when I left the military shortly thereafter, a year later, um, and went to work for, the defense contracting companies, a whole slew of them, I was very leery of accepting any leadership role where I was going to have the opportunity to be overly aggressive or choose a method to get a job done that took an unnecessary risk. Uh, in fact, I, I avoided it with a, like the plague. And that was no problem. The money was good just working as a medic. You didn't need to be some kind of... Um, team lead or site manager or anything like that to to do well. And I was happy doing it. I guess this change came about more afterwards. I worked, I continued to work primarily in medicine when I was contracting for the next six years. When I quit the job in Pakistan, uh, it was because I'd, I'd had kids and I didn't want to be gone anymore. When we moved back to Maine, I tried to sign up for the local ambulance service, you know, some BS job at 15 bucks an hour, but it was right around the corner and I thought I could pick up a shift or two. I went on a couple of ride alongs with them uh, so they could kind of evaluate me. And within like two or three, I realized I don't want to do medicine anymore. I don't want to deal with emotional and physical trauma. I, I don't, I'm done. So that came about sometime after the military, but it definitely had its its uh, roots in me trying to save my friend's life and failing, you know, in the middle of that that first big firefight. So was there? So did you see medicine? Am I putting words in your mouth to 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 say that there was kind of a sense of atonement with pivoting hard towards medicine for those six years that you were contracting? And that at a certain point, then you were kind of done. You're like, I've atoned and I've, you know, I'm done with medicine. Or was that, is that painting too, with too broad a brush? Or yeah, I, I don't, I don't think I, um, I still don't think I really have anything to atone for. The fact that I'm 
responsible to a certain degree for my friend's death doesn't really um, change the fact that we were doing a legitimate mission that we should have been doing. Right. right. So I didn't feel like I had anything to atone for. I, w- I worked in medicine afterwards because it was lucrative, you mm. know. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. But, you know, uh, EMTs, paramedics, white paramedics, uh, they either kill themselves or they burn out almost to a T. Very few people have the, I don't know, the ability to compartmentalize, to set that the emotions that they have during the shift aside and and be okay at the end of a 25-year career. They're, they're mostly fucked up. Yeah. I made it, you know, between my time in the army and my time contracting, I made it about 10 years. And then I was like, I don't, I don't want to see, I don't want to see, um, I don't want to see kids hurt anymore, for one thing. I don't want to see uh, the parents' reactions to kids being hurt and dying anymore. I, I don't want to live through that on a day-to-day basis anymore. So, was that was that made in conjunction with the decision to fully go after writing, or did one kind of replace the other? Where you're like, okay, fun card has officially been punched, and now I'm out. And now I want to go into the positives of life. And now I want to like ex- explore the other half, see how the other half lives. I, I don't, I'm not sure about it, seeing it as uh, this and then this thing. Uh, it mm-hmm. was more like, I'm going to, I'm going to start writing now because I've always kind of wanted to. And now I have the opportunity. Okay. Um, again, I, I'm fairly realistic about it. And I was, you know, I always have been. Writing is not much of a career. Uh, you're not in terms of you know putting food on the table. You, you have to you have to be really good, and you have to sort of get lucky to make money. Uh, so I went in knowing that, but I still wanted to to do it. Uh, part of part of the learning to writing is you know I I have I'm bragging I've, I've excelled at everything that I've ever done just about with fairly minimal effort. I'm not saying that the Q course wasn't hard, but I was never in danger of quitting. Uh, you know, uh, the I, 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 I've, I've always been pretty good at what I do, and so it's a it's a challenge. You know, can I learn this new skill? To the to the can I can I become the Green Beret equivalent of a writer? Can I get to the to a tier one uh, level of of writing uh, where? I'm in the top, you know, whatever, half of a percent or whatever. Wait, right. So that, that's a that's a personal challenge to me, uh, whether it ever earns me a dime or, or not. So that was definitely there when I when I pivoted to writing is this is something totally foreign from military life. Uh, yeah, let's see how you can do in this new skill. Is there an itch that still needs scratching as you go through an academic heavy or writing heavy life? now that you go eh, i mean i could use a little bit of a rush right now is there still a part of that or 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 are you really are you getting your rush from writing is it have you changed what you need sensorily to thrive um one of the only things i miss from from i mean i really miss that was just pure enjoyment from the military is uh jumping halo halo i really got a kick out of that 
that being said, I'm a, enough of a realist to know that I'm too old to really do it anymore, you know, in a military or a civilian fashion. Uh, you know, my legs, my joints are all screwed up. I got bilateral, uh, what's it called? FAI, femur, femoral acetabular impingement. You know, nerves are getting pinched in the in the acetabulum, the, my hip joint, uh, to the point that I can't run. If I can't run, I have no business jumping out of a plane and trying to land a parachute. And I, and I know that. Do I wish that I could? Kind of. I'm not really big on the regret thing. I, I'm fairly accepting of the fact that I'm 40, almost 42 years old, and I have the body of a 50-some-odd-year-old because of what I've done. And I have to do the things that I'm capable of. Uh, yeah, so I, yeah, I'm okay with it. Okay. Um, we gotta, we gotta talk more about the book, um, because it, it deserves it. How happy are you with the book? Do you look back? Is there, I, I know, you know, the writer's never finished and it's always, ah, I could do one more thing and all this, but do you feel like this is, do you feel like, let me, let me posit this maybe in a different way. So many great artists write about the same themes over and over. Woody Allen's all about sex and death, right? It's like we're always going to go to that 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 well for inspiration and for subject matter. Do you feel like you're done with this part now and you can move on to other stories that you have, whether it's fiction, whether it's more poetry, whatever? Or do you feel like, no, this was a good first stanza of what I want to say on this subject, but there will be more to come and, and this will never be a subject that I'm fully exhausted the the book the poetry book the novel that i'm revising the collection of short stories they all came about more or less at the same time they all they all have their roots in the same time therefore they all include a certain there's a lot of overlap in subject matter thematically etc if and when I get those other two published and I'm not in any hurry, then I will be ready to turn the page and move mm. on. The book, this book is as good as I could have made it at that point. Mm. I'm satisfied with that. Uh, and the reception it's got, the feedback I'm getting from other veterans primarily um, has been beyond my wildest hopes. So um, not only do they appreciate the book, that's great. It seems to be helping people. Yeah. So, you know, um, that's awesome. That tells me that my job as a communicator has been successful in the best possible way. I have touched people emotionally, but I have also helped them to communicate with other human beings. Some folks are opening up about things they never opened up about. Some of them are just um, just thrilled to know that the way that they see the world, they're not the only ones who see it. You know, a lot of the guys who are suffering from PTSD, part of what you start to feel is, I, I must be the only one who feels this bad or has this reaction. Uh, uh, not too gentle reminder that you're not the only one seems to be helping guys too. And some gals, specifically. That does not surprise me at all. Since you say this is, book is as good as you could have written it for when you did write it, where do you think you need to improve as a writer? What do you look at and go, ah, I got to get stronger here. I wish I could do this. I'd like to get smarter on this. Where, where, what are your 
improves? All my emphasis on improving is in the realm of prose, fiction and nonfiction. Mm. I am studying the shit out of that. I'm still taking classes. I'm on the last of my GI Bill, um, burning through just like basically a couple extra semesters at a program that I'll never graduate because I can't afford it once the GI Bill money runs out. Um, all my emphasis is on learning to write better prose. Um, down everything down to word choice, up to sentence structure and syntax, up to how to organize the the release of information to your reader in the most effective way, to beginning and ending a chapter, beginning and ending the book, how to incorporate setting, how to incorporate thematic elements so that they're not intrusive to the story. You you name it. That's where all my learning and my hopes for improvement are. Poetry, I poetry is just more personal for me. For me, it comes out most of the time. I have to go back and dress it up a little bit, mm. um, try to make it, but but with the idea that I'm making it more effective in conveying what I want to convey, not in that I'm going to make it more poetic. Mm. Um, and and I'm generally happy with it if i wasn't happy with it those are the poems that didn't make it into the book uh and that's okay i if i go back to them without having studied taken a class a lick of poetry in 10 years but i've matured in 10 years and i can go back and look at that and say oh i think i was trying to get at this and here i have an idea how it's more has more to do with inspiration than it does for me with learning I, ha I have the tools floating around in my head. Sometimes they aren't coming to the fore until I let it sit for years, come back and be like, oh, here's something I could play with. And I play with it and yeah, it's working better now. Yeah. Yeah. What is your battle rhythm as a writer? Do you have to write every day? Uh, I don't have to, but I sure like to. If, if I didn't enjoy this bad, I wouldn't be doing it. So yeah. generally I write two hours every morning. I haven't been because... Uh, Wife flew to Europe for two and a half weeks, three and a half weeks, and I got three little kids. So, you know, I was I was doing full time running around like a like a crazy here. Um, that kind of got me out of it. And then we've been super busy, and I'm getting ready to go to a writing residency. After the residency, I'm going to pick back up, you know. So, and I will be very glad to pick back up. <laughs> um, I I don't want to let you go without talking about some of the a couple of the aspects of the book that i thought were interesting choices um for one can you talk a little bit because it's in your titular poem uh black snowflake smothering a torch repeatedly talk about the importance of taking the name of the lord in vain and that motif that keeps going through it um I wasn't sure I totally tracked where that was coming from, but I loved the impact of it. So I wanted to know if you could just talk a little bit about where, what was the instigation for that? That's a question I haven't been asked yet. Uh, the, the initial impulse that comes to me is, you know, from my lifelong uh, feeling that uh, anything you do in the name of the Lord, name or or action is in vain anyway. Um one of the things I've learned 
in the last 10 years, maybe since certainly since I got out, though, is that uh, one of the values of organized religion is that it seems to give people some sort of basis or something to hold on to that helps prevent and helps mitigate PTSD. There are fewer people who seem to be genuinely religious who are struggling with the issues that I am struggling with, it seems. Uh, so that that might have something to do with repeating that line. Part of it's just humor, the dark humor that mm-hmm. is especially prevalent in that poem. Part of it might have to do with the fact that um, people who are in the military, military members and veterans, and especially PTSD suffering veterans, they're going to take the name of the Lord in vain in a different way than a civilian is. And so I think that feeds back into the humor a lot of times. I think that's probably the, the best series of pseudo answers I can bullshit my way through right now, man, to be honest. I like I, it. No. You know, I, it needed a refrain. Um, so there's, a, in fact, it needed a couple of refrains. There's several that are repeated in there. Um, to hold together a 20 however many page poem that one worked for me and i ran with it in numerous numerous spots in there there's a there's a lot of questioning of religion in there as well just it in general and so it's part and parcel of that too at least you talked earlier about the cynicism that came from military service to me i i think that's pretty common that there's a lot of cynicism we we kind of leave the service with. And the poetry certainly echoes that. How do you feel about your service or the particular wars, the particular conflict zones that you're in? Because throughout the poetry, because I, I think what I kept coming back to in my own thought reading through it is how important it is to for PTS or, or any sort of moral injury or potential moral injury to know that or to have a underlying sense that what you did was worthwhile. And I feel like a lot of times we're at we we end up going down a very dangerous path, sometimes not unjustly, but if there's doubt that what we did was worthwhile or, you know, um, or in some cases that America is worth defending, which has become a, a theme I've seen, not in yours, in your poetry as much, but I have seen in, in other work. Um, so I feel like I can't avoid the semi-political question of where, you know, uh, how do you feel about all that? Because there is a good heap of cynicism and how do you, yeah, what's your? Where are you at with the reconciliation of that to your own lived experience, and and the uh, and what is a clear disdain for so many types of civilians, whether it's politicians or um, uh, what, what was the phrase that you? I probably should have punched it up here. What do you keep calling people? Uh, my 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 Bright clear eyed darlings. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, you know. Uh, just talk about where that where where you where you sit with that now. Um, well, I guess the first thing is that uh, I don't feel too badly about it because I did the best I could to get to the place where I was going to have an effect. 
the fact that I didn't get there and I ended up shooting farmers, that was not my fault. I gave it my all to get there and do the job that I wanted to do. The fact that the military put me in in these other situations, I, I legitimately, you know, it's not my fault, man. I did everything I could to get where I needed to be. Um, second thing that came to mind when you were asking that is a lot of guys were hit really hard by um, us giving up on Afghanistan and the way that all went down. Um, one, that was how that had to end. I think I called that in 2009, you know, there, we were never going to have some kind of victory in that situation. Uh, so I was not surprised at, at all. And two, you know, I, I could not care less. The, the, the religious nut jobs are back in control over there. I, you know, uh, religious, um, the Taliban and the far right in America are more similar than a lot of people realize. Uh, the, the hardcore conservatives have a lot of the same values wherever you go in the world. So the um, I find a lot of humor in the fact that a lot of the people who are so upset are is the religious right over here who think that the other religious right is doing terrible stuff over there when they are hypocritically blind to the terrible stuff that goes on in our own country um, and and comes from 400 years of Puritanism. Mm. Do you think it's the same? No, I don't think it equates, but I mm. think that a lot of it comes from the same impulses. What do you think those are? Um, a desire for um, order that is not actually possible in human affairs a desire for patriarchal order that is i i disagree with strongly um a desire for uniform morality that is not possible given our differences um a desire for simplicity and uh ooh, there's a word there but it's i don't know what it is staticness uh, a desire to stay the same and none of these things jive with the ways that i have seen life to be they're mm. not realistic notions uh they're simplistic they're frequently guided by some degree of fear people who do not want to expand their horizons they want to stay in their comfort zone that that's at the root of a lot of conservative thought um and i think a lot of those go for the taliban and the hard right over here Interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, how then do you look at the U.S. military presence over the last 20 years? Are you cynical at all about that? Or I guess, let me ask you a different way. What's the root of your cynicism? Where do you put the brunt of your ire? Do you do you look and go, because I, I, I see, as I said, I see so many dollops of cynicism littered throughout and there are a bunch of different targets some of which i think are pretty funny that i'll get to well in one case maybe not so funny but we'll get to in a second but um in this certainly in the civilian population i was like are we talking about because you you seem to reserve a little bit for politicians you seem to serve reserve a little bit for the naive and for the people that are blase um you talk about the mindless thank you for thank yous for your service all that stuff 
where do you direct most of your ire? What are you what are you most turned off by now after looking over the last 20 years? Uh what what fills you with resentment or anger or just gets your blood up when you see it the most? Uh very little gets my blood up. I get, I think my reaction is usually uh cynical disbelief. Um uh, the whole uh if I wasn't laughing cynically, I'd be crying. Yeah. Uh, response. Yeah. Um, but but my what what engenders that response is uh, maybe simply uh, American culture as it is, uh, and that's a very broad term for how we are, uh, and a fairly large slice of that pie is how we as a culture and country choose to go to war uh unthinkingly um or in the case of uh i think iraq simply because the people we put in power decided we should um i felt that the afghanistan war was initially at least justified like i said i i felt that the what had happened was wrong those wrongs needed righted and the best way to do that was to go kill the people who were responsible i honestly thought that that was a very legitimate response um of course uh congress has not voted for us to go to war in i think since world war ii i could have right. it wrong uh i think we should go back to having that i really don't think that um as a country having that decision rest in the hands of I have few politicians as, a to, as opposed to all the elected representatives in Congress. I, I think that that's a wrong move. I think there's times to deploy um, uh, small groups of tier one units to do a specific thing, mm -hmm. but certainly not to do a 20 year or a two year war. You know, if something needs done, by all means, let let the decision be made by those in charge and they can go do it. But yeah. um, the idea that we were going to country build Afghanistan and uh, that was, that was a bad idea. And I don't think we should have uh, engaged in that ever. I think we should have just trashed the shit out of Al Qaeda, regardless of what country they were in and come home. What do you think when you talked about American culture and directing your ire against that? I know in, in the, Several times, I believe, in the book, I think it's more than once you talked about the pussified, um, pussified people, pussified American way of uh, way of approaching things, or our pussified culture now, or something like something to that effect. You'll know it better than I than I remember it. Um, is that what you mean when you say you have a uh, that some of your, your ire or the bulk of it might be directed towards? American culture, I guess. What do you, what do you, because you talked about the culture of getting into wars. Is that really the gist of it? Or is it everything stateside kind of writ large, the way that America handles its own business? I, I think more specifically, it's the way that um, American civilians are okay with these events that go on and don't clamor for change. Uh, when they don't have a dog in the fight. There are too many people who do not have a service member fighting. There are too many um, 
and and even if you don't, the courageous thing would be to think and think carefully about um, what you are voting for through your elected when you vote for your elected officials. If they're a proponent of this war or that war, uh, I would I would really hope that the civilians would have enough courage to really think about what that means in voting for these folks. Um, and I don't think they have the courage to do that. Do you think wars are inherently unjust? Um, no. I mean, I think, again, poor uh, Mac McCarthy just died. He said... Uh, War is uh, the oldest trade, existed long before man, and uh, the ultimate practice awaiting the ultimate practitioner or something like that, I'm paraphrasing. I think there's a lot of truth in that, but I don't think that, I don't think they're separate. I think that humans are always going to go to war. I think that's part of human nature. Um, I think if there was ever a war that was just in its intentions, the... um, the reaction to 9-11 was pretty, pretty close. But I, and this is something that I wrote about in the, that poem about where, where I found out that Obama, uh, Osama bin Laden was killed. Yeah. Um, you know, in, in, in its intent, that started out as a just war. It morphed into some other mess fairly quickly uh, that, that was unjust in in many ways and just poorly thought out, executed. And I don't know what our intentions even were for a long time, you know? Uh, So do I think that there are just wars? Yes, I I think that some wars need to be conducted. Absolutely. I, I, uh, going back to the, the civilian bravery or lack thereof thing, I would love to see universal service. that, that that might be the least popular notion in America, but I can't think of a better way to do two things. One, close the close the gap in understanding between left and right, make them work together for a couple of years, and two, to get them to understand the impact of their decisions and exercising their right to vote. I don't believe that everybody needs to serve in the military for two years, but I think everybody needs to serve the country for a couple of years. And uh, I think that that would go a long ways to to doing two huge problems that this doing away with two huge problems this country has. Yeah, that is your your. Uh, I'm hearing more and more people say that now, and uh, yeah, I'm gonna I'm I, I have a whole I I don't want to keep you forever and ever because I've a we've done a whole lot of writing um, on this at Havoc Journal uh, uh-huh. years ago um, about military service i think when uh stan mccrystal i think first talked about he had a a plan for um one year mandatory service and i think that uh, i think it was like 2016 or something anyway that spurred a whole lot of thinking about what that could look like and the pros and cons of it um but that absolutely comes through and it's fun I'll, i'll relate that to what you said earlier then when we talk about the civ mill divide about getting civilians to understand the veteran mindset um am i making too much of it to say that it's interesting that's what we're talking about is hey civilians you need to learn the veteran experience we're not necessarily putting the emphasis on hey veterans uh 
I don't know, learn more about the civilian experience. We're not pushing you into mandatory civilianship necessarily, but that the learning curve does kind of skew towards the civilian population, that they're the ones that need to appreciate and learn this rarefied experience. I think the learning curve skews one way. I think appreciation would go both ways in the sense Uh, that um, if you had universal service, people who served, chose to serve their two years in the military could get out and the other person is no longer a civilian who has never served in any mm-hmm. capacity. You have something in common, even if they didn't serve in the military, they have served. That would do something to correct the, dis, the you know, frequently veterans look down on civilians, you know, as they, they look down on us, <laughs> you know, it goes both ways, but that would, that would help correct some of that. Is there, I don't want to put words in your mouth, so I want to ask it as a question, but throughout, I I wondered if I could detect some tone of um, veterans have an appreciation for real world stakes where civilians may not. Is there any, am I putting words in your mouth? Is that, was I reading too much into that subtext or is there that actually there? Yeah. An appreciation for what did you say? For real world problems. Um, I, the way I would phrase it is they have an appreciation for life that that civilians frequently do not. I honestly think that you can't, a big part of the human experience, a certain part of the human experience is living through an experience that's close to death. You cannot get that if you haven't lived through that experience. So there's there's a, a chunk of this full life that you are not living. That um, That's there. Whether they whether it's real or unreal. Um, I, I, you know, I, I don't think that it's any more real or valuable. I just think it broadens your scope of experience in a fairly significant, to a fairly significant degree. I can appreciate that. I can appreciate that. I want to touch on two particular uh, uh colors of shade that you throw out in the in the book which uh i just i i can't ignore i gotta ask about it so um seals uh let's yeah. talk about the seals so yeah. we're uh so i obviously i can i can imagine uh you know where a lot of the the heat came from about that but you also have footnotes to marcus luttrell and you know people that walked alone and all that um but talk a little bit about your impression of the SEAL community that you reference in the book. I've worked with SEALs uh, both when I was in and afterwards did medical training for uh, SEAL team units. Um, it's a, they're, As far as I can tell, it's exactly the same as uh, SF in the, in the sense that um, you get different caliber of individuals in these high tier units. Some of them are borderline shitbags. Some of them are stellar. That goes throughout. You know, some of your teammates are going to be more useful in a firefight than others. Some of them are going to have their wits together. Some of them are not. Some of them are going to show up late every goddamn day. Some of them are going to be there early like they need to be. You know, on and on it goes. Uh, the, the thing about the SEALs is the Hollywood SEALs. You know, uh, if you're in a tier one unit, you're not really supposed to talk about it, dude. That's that's beaten into us in uh, SF. You know, we're supposed to be the quiet professionals. Uh, the SEALs don't seem to give a shit. Um, and 
it doesn't really bother me too much, but it's there like a little tiny itch at the back of my mind that because we, we screw ourselves, because we are quiet professionals, nobody knows nearly as much about us. There isn't as much name recognition as there is with sales because they're all over the place. Um, I think I would still rather be the quiet professional, but the fact that they get that recognition and say the difference between had, had a seal the same book, there would have been that much more instant publicity for it than for a green beret. Um, that it doesn't really bother me, but it bothers me that they they go against everything that they should be doing. You know, if you're in that unit, you, everything you do should be fairly secretive. You know, for the most part, there's uh, going out and publicizing it is 180 degrees the opposite direction. So, do you, do you think they're, they're a, good guys? You know, yeah, by no, and large. no. Do you think there's any value though in that they that there might be a sense of taking a different tack to accomplish the same goal as you, bridging the sieve mill divide? It's just ah. this is a more showy way of doing it, perhaps. But then again. It might be that, you know, nine-year-olds or whatever aren't necessarily looking for poetry books, but they will see a movie and they'll go, oh, shit, hey, bitchin', seals, cool, oh, I get it, oh, wait, that sucked, oh, my God, how'd that all happen, you know, and I don't know, is there any value to that, do you think? Uh, I, I don't see much value in that regard in, in the terms of bridging that divide. What I see is, well, I think it's it's right there with the one of the mentions of the seals. It, it's mostly propaganda. It's a recruiting mechanism. I saw way too many guys who were in the Q course trying to get in because they wanted to be like Rambo or some shit. That's a piss poor reason for wanting to be there. Helps fill up the 82nd Airborne with guys who quit the Q course. Um, so it works as a recruiting trip tool. Yeah. yeah. But it's still propaganda. Um, I don't. I would rather have a country that didn't need propaganda to have people want to join its military. I would rather have a country and a military that people want to join for the mission that it's sent on because they believe in the things that that military is doing and that the country is sending them for good reasons, not because of the glamour of Hollywood. Do you think that's possible in a country that A, is not at war and B, is not poor? Those are the two exceptions I can, because I'm thinking like Israel, they probably don't need a lot of propaganda, but then again, you got six geopolitical enemies surrounding you and you're the size of a postage stamp. Um, or like DRC, you don't need a lot of propaganda to join the Congolese army because that's how you're going to get guns and money. And then you can, you know, as, as I think, uh, uh, the president once said, the president of Congo once said, uh, Joseph Kabila, he, he said, uh, why should I pay my military? They have guns. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, so those are the two examples I can think of where you might not need that. But wouldn't any other country need some degree of propaganda to get anybody to join if you're coming from a relatively comfortable society? When there is a need, you're pointing to needs or threats, right? That, mm -hmm. that uh, get people to sign up. I think they broke pretty much all recruiting records known to man in the days after Pearl Harbor and the days after 9 11. Sure, sure. When there is a need, the military can fill right up. Mm -hmm. um, 
without any any propaganda playing any role. Not to say that there wasn't a lot of propaganda during World War II, but uh, and then you know a certain amount of political spin on the 9/11 attacks, and certainly I think that the political spin and the propaganda played a role in getting us into Iraq. Um, you need to maintain a giant professional army or, you know, I, this is, this is a wormhole. I, it goes yeah, down, yeah, and down. Yeah, we yeah. can talk about right. this forever. You know, right. I'm, I'm thrilled that a bunch of the NATO countries are actually spending 2% of their budget plus on their defense now so that we don't have to spend 22% of our budget on defense. I think it should have been that way all along. There's other uses for that money. And that would mean a smaller military that wouldn't need to recruit so hard that wouldn't need as much propaganda, maybe mm, to I get, see. you know, to work it back okay. to where we were. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. I, I, I have to ask about the Marines. Uh, doesn't oh, seem God. like you had a great time working with Marines. Um, but <laughs> what great fucking specifics. I'm, I don't want to spoil it too much for folks that haven't read the book yet, but um, just man, was that, relatable like yeah yeah that i thought you captured that with such specificity was it one bad experience you have with marines or did you see a recurring pattern working with them um, it wasn't that experience i guess uh, that's right yeah yeah the the um had a young man who was fairly overwhelmed in a very intense firefight we were in a near ambush i had just been shot and they were shooting all over the place I was overwhelmed too. He was a little bit more overwhelmed than I was and his brain was shutting off. That's all. Uh, the bad experience came afterwards and it wasn't his fault at all. Yeah, his unit put him in for the Silver Star, Silver Star and he got it. And what he basically did in that firefight was help some and get in the way some. So that after the fact, gave me a bad taste. Had nothing to do with him as an individual. Mm, mm-hmm. wasn't, a bad, wasn't a bad kid at all. Um, and I'd say the same thing for the Marines I work with. You get your mix of shit bags and your mix of stellar dudes. Seems to be, the ratio seems to be pretty close to the same no matter what unit you go to. I, you know, that being said, I never did make it to CAG. So um, <laughs> I don't, I you know, I, I hope at that point they have winnowed out the dead weight. Uh, so there was that. Uh, you know, another thing was they were trying to stand up um, Marsoc while I was in. And all of a sudden we had these Marines who were going to do our mission, but they were Marines. You know, uh, you taking these hard chargers and telling them now you're going to um, use your brain more than your gun and you're going to win hearts and minds by doing all these things that that was a learning curve and we we tried to help them frequently both in afghanistan and in africa again didn't have anything to do with the individuals involved but the political decision the marines wanted a spec op arm that where their mission overlaid ours almost completely that was a little uh illegitimate uh we frequently felt sorry for the individuals that we were trying to help you know they were doing stuff uh the hard way they were doing stuff that was straight up dangerous sending two dudes off by themselves with uh 30 afghan army guys to go sit on a 
cop for a few days by themselves and then handed out their night vision to the locals because they had to help them. They had to have somebody pull stuff at night, just doing crazy wazoo stuff. Again, didn't have anything to do with the actual Marines involved. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the silver star thing the, uh, you, you, we talked earlier about what I learned, you know, I learned the value of military medals and, or the, the lack yeah. of value in, in medals. Yeah. Um, I've seen very legitimate awards. I'm like that dude straight up earned that he could have been put in for something higher. And I've seen, you know, just total bullshit. The problem with the bullshit is it demeans all the legitimate shit. It lessens, it takes away all value, you know, because you can't differentiate between it's the same metal. And if one guy gets it for doing damn near nothing and another guy gets it for running through a minefield and rescuing casualties, I, well, Sucks to be the dude who actually did it because the other guy just sat on his ass. I, so, you know, that, that, there's a certain amount of bitterness and learning there. But at the same time, yeah, it is what it is. Well, and then, like you said, uh, I'll, I'll paraphrase if I can't get exactly, but you said uh, the, the metal, what you did means half as much as the metal you got or something to that effect or. What you do on the battlefield is half as important as what you do in the chow hall. That's it. The people, the people that give it. you medals are watching. Yeah. yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and that that just rang harshly correct um, to me. As I think that's there, but I, I'm still amazed when I think of all the infantry units that I saw that came back and everybody got an AAM for 365 days, 416 combat patrols. They all get AAMs, and the JAG officer gets a bronze star. You know, and you're. Really? Yeah, that's how that's okay. All right. Yeah. yeah. God bless. There's, there's but you know, yeah. Way too many stories that are just like that. Yeah, yeah, just crazy. Um, listen, the book um is phenomenal. You, your fault. Nice. You're too interesting. We got sidetracked on too many other things. I really wanted to read a lot more from the book and have you comment on it. But honestly, the book is phenomenal. It was I don't want to say it was a pleasure to read. It was refreshing and cathartic to read um i wouldn't eat it over my breakfast cereal in the morning for fun but goddamn was it a lot of grist for the gray matter it it i really enjoyed and appreciated thoughts that i had not thought in a long time being illuminated and enunciated um and i think it's uh i think it deserves uh, honestly a very high profile in the annals of veteran literature um because i it it says something that and, and says some truths that i i don't think have been given voice anywhere else that i know of so um thank you thanks for coming on the show thanks for doing this and goddamn stay in touch and and come on back on the show especially as these other books come out thanks chris of course i appreciate you having me and you know appreciate your kind words that was the savage wonder of Ryan Stovall. Really interesting dude who has written a phenomenal book. I mean, we haven't had anybody that's like sucked. We've never had a guest on that's like, holy shit, that was a waste of time. Um, I mean, for one thing, if I don't like your work, you're probably not coming on the show in the first place. So that's always a stipulated point. And, um, and rarely does work I like in the veteran community come from people that are really boring uh, to talk to. So that's not really that rare, but I guess what I'm responding to is just the uniqueness 
the particular intricate personalized nature of the way that Ryan is interesting. Um, and his, his, his origin story all the way through his execution of his work, I just found to be really, um, I don't know, worth diving into. I really enjoyed the shit out of talking to him. So, uh, one thing I did forget to do though, at the end of the show with Ryan was allow him to give a plug. So I'm going to plug for him. Uh, you need to follow him at Ryan Stovall.com. Ryan R Y A N Stovall S T O V A L L.com. Um, he is in the enviable position of not being on Instagram, but he is on Facebook. And um, I'm going to plug his Facebook, uh, which is uh, uh, ryan.stovall.green.beret. So, um, yeah, facebook.com, Ryan Stovall Green Beret, all separated with periods. So check that, check his book out there and everything. Um, And that's probably going to be the best way to keep in touch with him and find out what else is going on. Uh, But wow. Really, I thank Ryan for coming on the show and uh, look forward to more, especially as the fiction comes out and more books go into publication. Okay. Um, what do you guys think of the song? New theme music. Pretty cool, right? Um, felt like it was about time that we changed the music up. Um, I, w- wasn't, I really liked the old music. It just wasn't right for the show. It was like Chris Meyer sitting at home late, you know, doing work. That's kind of a cool song to have on, but it was like, it's just not, it, it doesn't pop the way the intro needed to. So I like this one and we'll ride this, uh, for the foreseeable future. Um, and at some point, I think we're going to have to tap into our veteran art community to come up with a cool intro for us. But anyway, I'll jump off that bridge when we get to it anyway. Uh, so Stuff you guys should know. At VetRep, we got a million things going on. I won't bore you with all of it right now. The best thing for you to do is go to VetRep.org, V-E-T-R-E-P.org, VetRep.org. While you're there on the homepage, scroll down just a little bit, and you'll see the option to subscribe for free to our literary blog, which also doubles as a mailing list. So um, go ahead, click on that button. And what that will mean is every single day in your email inbox, you will get a snippet of veteran writing, original veteran writing, uh, poetry, fiction, sometimes creative nonfiction. And then it will be followed by a bunch of shameless plugs telling you all the stuff that we have going on, or at least the highlights of some of the stuff that we have going on uh, so that you can fit that into your schedule as you see fit. But um, we're almost up to a thousand subscribers for the blog, which is freaking awesome. So please help us get to a thousand and more um, by subscribing now. Okay. I need to thank this episode's producer, Mike Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer on behalf of everybody at Veterans Repertory Theater. See you next time when we will dive further into the savage wonder of veterans in the arts.